Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we have four songwriting teams to share with you. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So welcome back to the Music History Project, and what an exciting day for a podcast. Woo-hoo. Today, as Michelle just said earlier, we are talking about four very famous songwriting teams. And it is so cool that over the years we've been able to interview both the lyricist and the composer of these famous teams. So we just thought we'd get together all four of them and have their perspective on their careers, some of the highlights of the songs they've written, and their perspective of the art of songwriting. Yeah, so today we are going to hear from Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Now that's a list of songwriters. (laughs) Absolutely amazing output over the years. So perhaps we can start with uh, Jay and Ray, Livingston and Evans, whose names have been uh, associated with not one, not two, but three Oscar-winning songs, which is kind of cool. So we're going to hear from these guys. This is an interview that took place in 1995. Uh, Both of them were born in 1915. They kind of give you a perspective of their era, sort of the the second wave of Tin Pan Alley, as we like to say, uh, in the 30s and 40s into the 1950s, where they were under contract with uh, MGM movies and wrote a bunch of songs uh, for a lot of motion pictures, including a little Christmas ditty that you probably know called Silver Bells. Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) They also wrote Mona Lisa for Nat King Cole, Kesh Sarah Sarah for Doris Day, Buttons and Bows. Those are the three uh, uh, Oscar winners. They also had a big, big hit with Tammy that uh, Debbie Reynolds did in the movie called Tammy and Dear Hearts, which was a big hit for Bing Crosby. And if that wasn't enough for them, I mean, tons of other songs, pop tunes uh, of the day as well. Uh, But then in the 60s, they got into writing television theme songs and wrote Mr. Ed and Bonanza and a bunch (laughs) of others. So what's really cool and a neat factor that uh, Michelle pointed out earlier, which is these guys really liked each other. They were best friends. It was a joy to hear, and I have a feeling you're going to enjoy them talking uh, just about their lives, and you can pick up on the fact that they were clearly friends. So here's the team of Livingston and Evans talking about how they got together as a songwriting team. It's a curious thing. You actually both went to uh, college together. Yeah, that's where we met, and, uh, you know, Jay had a dance band at the University of Pennsylvania, which I played in, which eventually led us into trying to become songwriters, which uh, eventually paid off, and uh, uh, that's why we're talking to you now. We played on a lot of cruise ships, and on our last cruise coming up the river, Ray said to me, let's stay in New York and be songwriters. What are you talking about? Sure. So I liked, I always wanted to write lyrics, and that's how it started. 
and six years later we had our first big hit. Yeah, it took a while, but we never quit. That's for sure. Thank goodness. And the, and the cruise ships, we did a lot of wonderful, a lot of saw a lot of wonderful places. We were in Russia in the forties. We were all over South America. We uh, made a lot of trips to the West Indies. So we were living like millionaires, even though we were paupers. But uh, it all uh, ended up beautifully. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mr. Livingston, let me ask you this. Now, you were um, born in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, as a as a young youngster, did you have ambitions of being a musician? Well, I played the piano a lot, and I thought I was a big shot piano player in this little town near Pittsburgh. When I got to New York, I found I wasn't that good a piano player. There's some great piano players there, so I thought writing song might be a good outlet, and it worked out fine. Yeah. I play pretty good, but not that good. Tell them about Little Jack Little, your your hero. Yeah, well, here was Little Jack Little from W O W Cincinnati. Oh, really? I picked up about W H A M Rochester too. Already? Huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was a D. You know what a DXer is? No. They don't have any. A DXer was a guy who tried to get all the radio stations he could. Oh. And I got 230 before I quit. Wow. So I know a lot of the stations around the country. I still remember the call letters. Amazing. Like, yeah. Like collecting stamps. You'd collect radio stations and see how far you could get. It was fun to compare with your friend who heard what when. Yeah. <laughs> So when did the ambition of being a, a songwriter take effect, Mr. Livingston? I mean, was this something that just kind of a, an idea came to you, or were you given a position? Well, that's Ray's question. He always wanted to be a lyric writer, right? That's for sure. And as I say, coming up the Hudson River on our last cruise, we'd been all over the world living like millionaires, and uh, we weren't millionaires. And I, the idea of staying in music or showbiz was so attractive, so I said to Jay, uh, very stupidly, let's stay in New York and write songs, not realizing how, no, uh, how tough it was going to be and how lucky you had to be. And six years later, it paid off. And as I say, that's why uh, we're here talking to you now. We didn't want any nine-to-five jobs. We wanted that's to be sure. Independent. Right. <laughs> so once again, that was the famous songwriting team of Livingston and Evans. And moving forward to our next famous songwriting team, we've got Gamble and Huff. What's really cool about this podcast, it's, it's occurring to me as we do this, is we assembled the four teams for which we've interviewed both the lyricist and the composer. But what's really cool in looking at this now is we're covering this major swath of American popular music, starting with uh, Livingston and Evans doing MGM musicals in the 50s, and now we're going to Gamble and Huff. I mean, quite the opposite. Uh, but these are the guys who really define what we now refer to as the Philadelphia sound, the Philly sound, uh, together writing an amazing amount of, of music and also creating businesses along the way to encourage other songwriters uh, being record producers at, at all. So it's just an amazing uh, group of folks who, by the way, are very active uh, today with the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York City. These guys were born just a year apart, uh, 1942 and three, Leon being the oldest, and really getting together with this idea of writing some songs for some of their friends, uh, one of which was a guy named Billy Paul, who in 1972 had a big, big hit uh, with me and Mrs. Jones. Um, my mother refused to explain what that song was about to me, <laughs> for I now know obvious reasons. <laughs> They also wrote for The Intruders, a great big hit for that group called Cowboys to Girls. The Expressway to Love, of course, we all know that one. Um, Love Train for the OJs. 
uh, just on and on, just an amazing amount of uh, music. But interestingly enough, I think it's it's important that these guys were involved with the process. So it was their hope to pick the uh, studio musicians. They loved the rhythm section. They were really involved with creating not just the song, but the sound. And I think that's a really important element of Gamble and Huff. Awesome. So let's hear from Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff talking about how they got together. So you alluded to the fact that uh, a whole new thing started when you guys met. How did you guys meet? Well, you know, after New York dried up for me, changed and went to L.A., I started playing sessions in Philadelphia. Hmm. Oh, okay. But, you know, I did that, like, on a part-time basis because I had a job. So, you know, like, supplement my income, you know, playing sessions and working with bands on the weekend. And um, I had the opportunity to, to be assigned to a production company, Madeira White Productions, who happened to be in the same building. Gamma was associated with a gentleman named Jerry Ross who worked on different floors in the same building. It just so happened by coincidence. We ended up on that, that elevator at the same time. And just start conversations. I don't know what we really said, but it developed to something phenomenal. Sure did, I'll say. <laughs> did you have like a project in mind that got you guys started, or how did it? Not, not really. I think I think what really got the Huff and I working together was that we were headed in the same direction. Mm. We both wanted to do the same thing, mm. and uh, and it was a, a person that I could talk to that was in the same situation I was in, you know. And uh, and I think we complemented each other, especially after we got together and started writing. And once we wrote some songs together, we went over Hop's house one Saturday, and um, and we sat down and wrote four or five songs together, like like we had like we had known each other all our lives. You know what I mean? So so that's that's what really made it made it click. It was the music that made it click. That uh, we were able to um, we were able to write songs uh, so fluently. Together, you know, and uh, we became very prolific because we we've never stopped writing. You know, it was great, Gamble too. When I, you know, I think about it, because we we both started out as songwriters individually, so you had to think. Me as a songwriter, I think of the words, and I got to think of what the melody is. And so it's like when you're writing by yourself is a lot. So when I met Gamble, and we sat down and did a spontaneous thing. Words was flowing off Gamble's head like an oil well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just flowing, like freestyling. So what I said was, yeah, so that took a lot off me. So I, all I could just concentrate on mm -hmm. playing. Yeah, it made it easier. Yeah. Made it easier, you know, because uh, Huff had written a few songs, like he said, Mixed Up Shook Up Girl and, and uh, and we working with Jerry Ross, we had written a few songs like Candy and the Kisses, the 81, and Sapphires, Who Do You Love? I was playing guitar a little bit, and I knew a few chords on the guitar. But see, Gav, you had a guitar when I met you. Yeah, yeah, so I was trying my best to learn how to play that guitar, and uh, and Jerry Ross and um, a guy named Joe Renzetti, mm -hmm. Joe Renzetti, who used to play the guitar. And um, I learned a lot from Joe, too. 
Hmm. But the main person that showed me how to play the guitar was a guy named Herb Johnson. Herb Johnson, um, he had a he had a record out called um, "I'm Guilty," and have you heard? So we we were singing background for Herb Johnson on some of his shows, and so Herb and I we became good friends, and um, he he's taught me how to play the guitar. He taught me about six chords. Then there was a, another guy with us. His name was Roland Chambers, who was a who was a master guitar player, and. Uh, but when Huff and I got together, it took the stress away from me trying to figure out how to play these chords. I didn't have to, because Huff was a master, master musician. And so it just left me free to <laughs> sing and, and me and Huff to have fun because you're operating from your position of strength, yeah. you see, instead of trying to figure chords out because all I have to do is hum something to Huff and Huff will find it. You know what I mean? Huff would go all different places, and I follow him. You know, so so it it turned it turned out to be uh, uh, something really uh, to be proud of. You know, and uh, you know you go back all these years, all these songs. You know, so it's it's not something to take lightly. You know. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's a blessing. You know. Did you find that a friendship was developing along with the songwriting a partner? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We we never even stopped to even think about it. Hmm. You know what I mean? It just it just automatically the same way we were then is the same way we are now. You know, and I, I appreciate that because um, I tell a lot of people. I said Huff, Huff is my friend. I said because because that's what made gambling Huff so strong is our unity and our respect for one another. You understand and. And we're still trying to figure out things together. And it's the music. It's the music that we have been able to create that's the proof of everything. You can talk all you want, but the proof of it is, is what can you actually produce and what can you do? And so um, we, found, um, we found a refuge in one another to be able to put our strengths together and those strengths helped us wiggle our way through this complicated business mm -hmm. that, that really is rough and hard. This is a very competitive industry and, uh, and Huff and I was able to, um, to put our talents together. So once again, that was the songwriting team, Gamble and Huff. Next up, Dan, could you tell us a little bit about Lieber and Stoller? Oh, no. Just a little? Just a smidge. <laughs> it's been slightly revealed over the years of this podcast that I am a bit of an Elvis fan. So I was like a little girl giggling in the corner <laughs> when I got to interview Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller at their offices in uh, Hollywood. That was 2007. And, and um, I mean, what an experience. Uh, wonderful guys. They treated me like a king. They were just really gracious with their time. And I asked all the dumb questions. And I just really had a wonderful time. And I think you will, too, in listening to these guys. Because, again, they were really good friends. They really liked each other. They admired each other. I loved that Mike would talk more about what Jerry's 
contributions were than Jerry did and vice versa. And that I think comes across in the music that they wrote. Um, So we're going to be hearing about uh, some of those guys and and their concepts of songwriting. But just to give you an idea, some of the songs that they wrote, they wrote a song uh, for uh, a blues artist named Big Mama Thornton, specifically for her called Hound Dog. And uh, we're going to hear about that story a little bit later on. Of course, another guy with sideburns recorded that. He also <laughs> recorded uh, Jailhouse Rock, Love Me, Loving You. He, uh, uh, Lieber and Stoller also wrote for the Coasters a ton of what we call sort of humorous songs. They really enjoyed writing funny lyrics. And as a result, they wrote things like Down in Mexico, Searchin', Youngblood. These are all number one hits for the Coasters. A thing called Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Along Came Jones, Poison Ivy, um, Little Egypt, which has uh, another lyric that my mother would never explain to me. (laughs) And... um, And then, of course, um, the Ben E. King song, Stand By Me, which was uh, a movie with the the title and um, Going to Kansas City, one of the great rock songs of the 1950s. And that's just a few of the songs given to us by Lieber and Stoller. All right. Well, (laughs) let's hear from the famous team Lieber and Stoller on how they got together. Jerry knew what he wanted to do. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew there were some things I wanted to do that I probably could never do. So it was um, fortuitous that we met. And actually the thing that really cemented our relationship was our love of uh, boogie woogie and blues and black culture. And uh, when we met, uh, well, actually, we met on the telephone. Jerry got my phone number from a drummer that he knew at Fairfax High School. And uh, Jerry was trying to write songs with the drummer who, as it happened, had a death in the family and he had to go to work and couldn't spend time with Jerry. And so, as it happened, I played a dance in a pickup band, dance in East LA, paid $3. And uh, it was given to me by um, a friend at Los Angeles City College who had this gig and then got one that paid $5, so he gave me the $3 gig. And then the drummer took my phone number and I thought I'd get some more $3 gigs. And instead I got a phone call from Jerry Lieber who wanted to know if I wanted to write songs with him. So Jerry, you already had the idea of forming a partnership with a songwriter. Oh, yes. I was told by a man who approached me at a job that I had after school in a record shop. And uh, he asked me what I was going to do when I grew up. And I told him I was going to be a songwriter. And he said, have you written any songs? And I said, yes. He said, what kind of songs? Do you have them? Where are they? 
I said, yeah, I said, I, can, I have a few. I said, I can sing uh, a song out of memory. And he said, well, do it. And I sang this blues song, my idea of a blues, which wasn't too much on the money in those days. And uh, he liked it very much. He said, you are a songwriter now. He said, I'll take you down to Modern Records or to Aladdin Records. Or He named three or four uh, labels. And he said, do you have a lead sheet on these songs? And I said, what's a lead sheet? And he knew right away that I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, he explained to me what a lead sheet was. And I said, I don't have a songwriter who can write music. And I don't write music, I write words. And he said, well, you have to find a songwriter who can write uh, lead sheets. And uh, I think I found, I think Jerry Horowitz uh, came through. The drummer. And, the right. drummer, yeah, and gave me your number. And I called Mike and I got, I got him on the phone and I said, is this Mike Solder? He said, yep. I said, do you play the piano? He said, yep. I said, uh, do, you, uh, do you like the blues? And he said, yep. And I said, how would you like to write songs? He said, nope. And I thought, that's a hard nut to crack. I wanted to hang up the phone. And so I said, hey, you know, if you want to come over, come over. And uh, the way I remember it, as I was hanging up the phone, the doorbell rang. At any rate, he, he came in. Uh, it took a while because I was staring at him when I opened the door because he has one brown eye and one blue eye. And I forgot to say anything, you know, my jaw just opened. I'd never seen that before. So, um, anyway, he came in and he showed me his uh, school composition book that he had lyrics written in. And I looked at them, because Jerry hadn't actually mentioned blues when he was on the phone. And I looked at what he had written and I said, these are 12 bar blues, because it had a a line and a, a line of ditto marks and then a rhyming line. I said, I love the blues. And I went over to the piano and started playing. And he started singing along and we turned to each other and we shook hands and said, we'll be partners. All right, so that was the famous team of Lieber and Stoller. Moving to our last duo, um, Let's talk a little bit about Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Absolutely. These guys were interviewed in 2013 in their lovely home in Beverly Hills. They were, again, very gracious. Uh, now, these guys are different than the other groups that we are talking about earlier in that both Alan and Marilyn wrote lyrics. They Neither of them really composed, although sometimes they did, but not famously. They always sought out somebody that they admired and wanted to work with, which is kind of a clever way of, of uh, making music. So among the people that they have um, collaborated with, Johnny Mandel, 
little you know people you never heard of um <laughs> john williams <laughs> <laughs> um, Henry Mancini, Sammy Fain, one of my personal favorites, uh, Marvin Hamlish, and on and on. I mean, and together they also wrote some uh, award-winning, uh, Oscar-winning songs. Um, I think one of the, the interesting things about their career is that they went in and out of writing for popular songs like Nice and Easy for Frank Sinatra and then going right into the movies like You Don't Bring Me Flowers, uh, things like that. So their career is very interesting in that they dabbled in both and very successfully, similar to uh, Jay and Ray that we heard from earlier. Um, just a really diverse group of um songs and and eras but also styles so for example just like jay and ray we heard earlier they wrote for popular songs they wrote for the movies well alan and uh, marilyn also wrote for television theme songs including everybody's favorite mod <laughs> which is often heard around my house um and good times they also wrote the theme for alice so diverse but always very fun and clever and i think that's the fun thing about the lyrics portion of the uh the songwriting team that we're going to delve into a little bit later on is their uniquenesses what they focused on as far as the um the spirit of the song and the message that they're trying to convey and certainly they've been honored uh multiple times for doing just that. By the way, we didn't mention that, uh, or I didn't mention, uh, In the Heat of the Night, 1967 was the first big song that they wrote for the movies. They collaborated with Quincy Jones. Should have mentioned that. Who's also in the NAM oral history yeah. collection. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's hear from Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Well, there was such a thing as Tin Pan Alley where there was a lot of songwriters then who were not represented on Broadway or in film uh, you know, when the Gershwins and, and Irving Berlin and Johnny Mercer and people like that wrote for film for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and, and Gene Kelly and all those musical people, it was the same high. Uh, I thought you were going to say, when you said there was a real community of writers too. Yeah. In, I mean, in the same place. I remember when I was in high school, probably, I had a friend, a girlfriend, who was very instrumental in my life. Now, you know, when I go back yes. and think about it, she changed my life by introducing me to her uncle, who was a songwriter named Bob Russell, very successful songwriter at his time. He wrote, uh, he wrote Don't Get Around Much Anymore, and he wrote, Brazil and ballerina and he ain't heavy. It's do funny. Not, He's my do brother. Do not. Do he, he was a lyricist, oh, yeah. a very good one. She introduced me to him and his family. And uh, a little bit later, I don't know quite how it happened, but uh, after school, I would go and I would play the piano for him. As he was writing, this was before, this is all olden days we're talking about. This was before tape machines or, you know, easy recording devices. So if a lyricist didn't play an instrument, mostly it would be the piano, yeah, they had to have somebody come and sit and play the tunes for them. 
So I, I played those Ellington tunes for him while he was writing. Wow. And then later on in my life, when I came to California, the only people I knew here was, was the family of Bob Russell. So I went to see him shortly after I arrived, and, and I said, what am I going to do here? And he said, well, why don't you write songs? I said, write songs? I don't know anything about writing songs. And I had a broken shoulder, so now I have a broken foot. I'd stop breaking things, Alan. <laughs> but I said, I can't play the piano. And he said, so? By then there was, I think there was reel to reel. It was some way no, of recording. Tape machines, I think. There was that. little cassette players, yeah, maybe. Yeah. This was in the 60s by now. No, no, 50s. Late 50s. Late. No, early 50s. No. Because we met in 56. Well, there was so, just a little before, before that. Yeah. So he said, yes, you do. You couldn't have sat and played those songs and heard, you know, the development of the songs. I had been a musician before. I mean, so that was not the problem. But so uh, anyway, I, he introduced me to a young songwriter named Lou Spence, who introduced me to Alan. So I guess, See? I guess she yeah. did change my life. Her name was Marilyn Jackson, and she was a group singer. Later, we went to high school together. And then she became a group singer. Welcome back once again. That was Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you, they also wrote um, <laughs> "Somewhere in the Dark" for E.T. One of the great movies ever. Okay, I think it. it's important to note that Dan kind of has steam coming out of his ears, <laughs> trying to get all of this information into the podcast. It's just when we talk about we're only talking about four songwriting teams, but when they've written as much as they have, <laughs> it's hard on Dan. Red, aren't they? Because he just wants to get it all out and we appreciate him for it. I love these guys. I mean, I just loved knowing them, meeting them and um, and I think that one of the cool things about this podcast is that we get to sort of move their careers forward a little bit, you know, keep that legacy going, especially uh, some of the ones who aren't with us anymore. I mean, we've of the ones we've talked about, we've lost Jay and Ray and uh, Jerry Lieber. So um, it's kind of important to me that we uh, keep this out there. And if I mention enough songs, maybe some of you listening will be like Michelle later today, <laughs> singing some of these songs to their colleagues. <laughs> What's stuck in your head so far? Uh, well, I just read a lyric that I'll be reading okay. a little later, okay. so I don't want to give away any spoilers, but let me That's just say, in your head. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> And that is a great segue into our next segment <laughs> where we're going to talk about the writing process. So I think it's important to start out with sharing some of these lyrics. Dan pulled out some really amazing songs by each of these teams, and I'm going to read them for you today. The first set is Livingston and Evans and the song Mona Lisa. I really like that he chose this song because a little bit later they'll tell you a little bit of the history as to how they wrote the song and for what reason. And I think just to 
interject. Uh, one of the hopes of this segment is that we think about this slightly different than we've always known it to be. We've known this to be the song, right? And what's really cool about analyzing songwriters is the lyrics and how they've figured out to put lyrics uh, to these um, to the music, the music to the lyrics, vice versa. And I think that when something is read like a poem that you only know it as a song, you tend to listen to, you tend to hear the cleverness of not just the rhymes, but what's the message and why did they put that word here and why did they put that word there? Because if you look at, I mean, a very famous song like Mona Lisa, we're only looking at a couple of paragraphs of lyrics, right? It's not very long, but um, is very meaningful. And I think that what these guys did is try to pick just the right words. They were very, that's why they call them wordsmiths. So with that, I'd love to hear Mona Lisa. All right, let me uh, try my best to not sing. And now I'm really <laughs> nervous. It's a really high bar. It's good. Okay. <clears throat> Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with the mystic smile. Is it only because you're lonely they have blamed you for that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile? Do you smile to tempt a lover, Mona Lisa? Or is this your way to hide a broken heart? Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa? Or just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art? Do you smile to tempt a lover, Mona Lisa? Or is this your way to hide a broken heart? Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa? Or just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art? Wow, that's weird. <laughs> it's way more powerful when you just read it like that. Yeah. I, I got to say I'm almost speechless. That's very well done, Michelle. So now let's hear from Jay and Ray talking about the songwriting process. Who's come up with the um, the ideas first? Well, in, in our days at Paramount, generally it was the, uh, you know, we, we'd, ha we'd get it from a script. They'd, uh, we'd, they'd say, to show us a script, they'd say, we need a song here, we need a song there. And it was up to either one of us who could, uh, uh, you know, think of what the uh, the best premise would be to to uh, to fit in that script. Now, I don't compose. Jay does all the composing, but we both work on lyrics. And generally, I try to, you know, once we had a title, I tried to write a lot of lyrics to show how that title could uh, be developed. And um, on our first big big hit, which really consolidated our position in Paramount to each his own. I wrote a couple pages of lyrics, and one line, uh, line caught Jay's fancy, two lips must insist and two more to be kissed. That gave him the beginning of the melody. Then we forgot all about the lyrics I'd written. He finished the melody to his satisfaction a few days later, and we went back and started over again using those lines, two lips must insist and two more to be kissed. And of course, that was a tremendous, tremendous hit for us in the 40s, maybe the biggest song of the 40s. So that's, in general, how we tried to work. Wow. <laughs> now, we do that a lot, right? Right, so and I find one that gives me a start on a melody. Or I write a melody separately, either way. Yeah. But uh, then we both sit down and write the words. Yeah, and forget about what's been done before, because at that point on, and, uh, you know, the words and the music should be one, should be of a piece, and uh, we do the best we can, and if it comes out right, then uh, we're, we're, you know, we've had a hit, and if it doesn't, then better luck next time. Wow. 
Now, when you were um, when you had completed to each his own, did yeah. do you, you remember that incidentally, Dan? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. that's. Yeah, I remember one time I got this is a really a Guinness Book of Records feat of the ten top selling records in the United States two weeks in a row. Five were different versions of to each his own. Oh. That'll never be equal. Never was before. And never will again because they don't make cover records. But I've got it in my scrapbook from the from the Billboard charts. Five of ten were different versions of the same song. That is incredible. Yeah, and people don't realize that, but you know, I say it could never never happen before, and it couldn't happen again. So who well, was see, nowadays, somebody does a hit song, nobody goes near it. But we had a, we had a picture song, we had a record from every record company. And the luck band, two each his own, they all sold. We had, well, uh, they all hit. Eddie Howard, Tony Martin, Freddie Martin, the Modern Airs, and the Ink Spots, and every one of them were on the charts. So I say two weeks, five of the ten were those records. Next up, we're going to hear from Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and they're going to also be talking about the writing process. One of the things I'm sort of curious about is when you look back at the early days, was it more of a project that you were told about, or did you just sort of come up with your own ideas? (coughs) Well, in order to be um, asked to do something, you know, I think you had to have a little track record. You had to be known a little bit. So in the beginning, I mean, I remember we used to create uh, uh, imaginary projects just as to write exercises, you know, for ourselves. We would find a piece of the newspaper and say, okay, here's a good idea for a sketch or for a show or whatever it is. And we would create this thing. Songs never never were heard. We, we, they weren't mean to be, meant to be. But I think, yeah, at a certain point, um, uh, we did start to get calls when either there was a record session or something. I mean, the movies came later, obviously. That was the dream. Uh, that came later. Uh, yeah, the, you know, once the, the nice and easy success was there, it became a little easier. That know. was the first movie, I think. No, Nice and Easy movie? wasn't a movie. No. Oh. We got the first A, a movie from that, yes. That producer at Fox said, yeah. what a song like Nice, nice and Easy yeah. for this movie. Yeah. Hmm. This movie, which was, I don't even remember it, but... Uh, yeah. You know. I was going to say, though, too, uh, a question, in an answer to your question, you know, the people in those days of the golden era I'm talking about, they were, they were creating uh, what they believed in. And, and, and they, they made the trends, you know. They weren't asked to, you got to have a lot of rhythm here or you got to do this. Well, it wasn't they were corporate. Re- it wasn't yeah, really corporate. You know, exactly, mm. exactly. You know. There was a purity about it. And they were nurturing, you're right. There was a nurturing thing that happened. Uh, Because you had a a class of of people who steered everything, and they were publishers. There was a... who knew music and who loved music. It was a chosen, you know, field. And they did... They did make make it possible for writers to make a living that way by you know 
getting the songs to artists and getting the songs to record companies and and then a, there was a commitment to the song so yeah. that's missing that's really missing and early on in our careers we wanted to write in a dramatic context whether it be Broadway or film or television whatever more than writing for records that's was secondary um, and luckily we got the opportunity you know, to do that with very good directors uh, who understood how to use songs as, as extensions of the screenplay and so forth uh, and that uh, you know that was a dream come true to be able to do that uh, and we can't forget, uh, as lyric writers, you know, we've had uh, uh, the opportunity and the chance to write with the best composers. And that, you know, a song is both music and lyrics, and, uh, and we've been very fortunate that way. What's really cool is while you're listening to these guys talk, I mean, they're a married couple, so it's kind of fun to hear that element of it. But you can also hear how they collaborate. And that's really, really I think, one of the magical things about interviewing the songwriting teams together, which isn't always possible. But when it is, it is really kind of a magical thing, as I hope you guys are picking up on. And you kind of get a glimpse as to what their life is like every day that they're working um, especially Jay and Ray. I can't even imagine being in that room as they're writing <laughs> these songs. They've just got to be laughing the whole time. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of the key elements to songwriting is chemistry with whoever you're working with. And, I mean, that's key in music in general, whether you're playing with someone or writing lyrics or whatever. Speaking of lyrics, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and start with another or another song, but this one is done by Lieber and Stoller. You may recognize it, you may not. Um this was a very popular song in my childhood, in my household. I don't know about you guys. It is, I believe it's called Yakety Yak. Right. Yeah. Don't talk back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe Mike and I can help with this one. <laughs> but of course, focusing in on, you know, Jerry Lieber's amazing talent as a comedian and putting funny words uh, into popular songs. Take out the papers and the trash or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor, you ain't going to rock and roll no more. Yakety yak. Don't talk back. <laughs> Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage out of sight or you don't go out Friday night. Yakety yak. Don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> You just put on your coat and hat and walk yourself to the laundromat. And when you finish doing that, bring in the dog and put out the cat. Yakety yak. Don't, Don't talk, talk back. back. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hard to do without singing, isn't it? <laughs> in a very serious tone. I know. <laughs> uh, I can almost like hear my parents playing that, trying to get me to like clean, you know? <laughs> So that is an interesting transition into our next segment, <laughs> which is actually all about the challenges that come with songwriting. And we're going to start off by hearing from Lieber and Stoller and their challenges writing the blues while being white. You must have been aware that nice Jewish boys didn't really write a whole lot of hit records for um, blues singers at that point. Well, actually, 
they did later on, or at least later on we did know that a lot of, quote, nice Jewish boys wrote songs for great African-American performers at the Cotton Club, talking about uh, Harold Arlen, uh, and uh, George Gershwin wrote a song called Summertime that is frequently performed by both black and white singers. Um, it was considered to be somewhat peculiar at the time, though. But we were not... The black people always thought that we were black until they came in contact with us and saw that we weren't. But they were always sure. When, remember, at the rehearsal, one of the first rehearsals for Smokey Joe's Cafe, two of the performers uh, who were black came and were shocked to find out. They always thought that Lieber and Stoller were black. Yeah. And I think it was in a, in a, in a, uh, a filmed interview with Smokey Robinson, he said, oh, I, I always knew they weren't black because, I mean, where'd they get those names? Lieber and Stoller? Come on. Those aren't black names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next we're going to hear from Gamble and Huff again, and they're going to be talking about some challenges and what it was like being African-American in Philadelphia. We were at a time when uh, Philadelphia was going through a transition because Philadelphia was a, a was a music town. You had American Bandstand here with Dick Clark, which was in those days equivalent to MTV or something of that nature because you could go on American Bandstand one day and sell a million records the next day American with Dick Clark and American Bandstand. And then along with that, you had Cameo Parkway Records, which had Chubby Checker, Dee Dee Sharp, the Orleans, uh, Bobby Rydell, all these people. Then you had Chancellor Records, you had Swan Records, you had Frankie Avalon, Fabian. I mean, so Philadelphia was, uh, was you had Lee Andrews and the Hearts, don't let me forget them. Uh, Spaniels. Yeah, the Spaniels. The, I mean, just, just unbelievable amounts of talent here in this city because you had all these outlets. And, um, and so Huff and I was trying to get into that circuit a little bit. But for two African-Americans in this city here, man, that was like almost unheard of, you know, as songwriters and producers and whatever, you know. And um, you had a lot of artists, you know, and, uh, and also to, to, to be able to make a living. How can, how can you make a, a good deal with somebody not trying to rip you off? You know, and so uh, so Huff and I, we had to figure out a way to do it on our own, to do it on our own, so that we could make the decisions on what we thought was good and what we thought wasn't good in our music. You know, and so we um, we started writing together, and we wrote songs for the Sapphires. Uh, Jerry Ross was still producing them. Um, we wrote songs for, um, um, well, Huff, Huff wrote a song for even the Candy and the Kisses. It was called Two Happy People, you and Cindy. Cindy. Yeah, Cindy. Yeah. And, um, Didn't we have some B-side with uh, the Orleans? Orleans, yeah. And then, my love. yeah. 
And then we had um, we had wrote and produced some songs for D.D. Sharp yeah. and Chubby Checker. I mean, so we were starting to get in, but they was on the, that whole company was on its way out. And and then uh, we decided to um, you know to uh, to be freelance producers, writers. Once, especially once we started to get uh, a couple of good records underneath our belt. And so what about the publishing? Did you, be, did you publish your own music at the beginning or did you have somebody help you with that? Well, yeah, well we started publishing our own music in the beginning, you know, like mm. uh, Huff was just saying, you know, he worked with Madeira and White. Mm. They had a, a company called uh, Double Diamond, I think it was. Yeah. And then Jerry Ross, I was working with Jerry Ross and he was, you know, publishing the songs and whatever and then and then, uh, you know, once you start to to get in there a little bit, you say, look, I want my own publishing, you know what I mean? So you start splitting publishing with people. And so, uh, and then when Huff and I started working together, we created a, a publishing company together. And um, I think I think when you, you meet people, I think the, the people that really uh, made uh, Gamble and Huff uh, propel was people like Cal Rudman. Cal Rudman was a, was a columnist for uh, Record World, and he had his own tip sheet. And once we met Cal Rudman, and he got involved in, and he really, he really thought the gambling off was really good. He promoted us, he pushed us, you know what I mean, in his magazine and, and whatever. And people in the industry started to become aware of gambling off. And, uh, and I think once we got the Expressway with the Soul Survivors and and Jerry Butler with Only the Strong Survive and Cowboys the Girls and I mean it all started to click together. There was a new music scene in Philadelphia, you know. So so it was good. And that's the only way that you can find out whether or not you're on the right track or not is that you do something the way you want to do it. Put it out into the marketplace because the people, they they got the last last word on this. And if the and if you sell records, then you gotta you gotta go with your own uh, opinion of your of your music. You know, you can't you can't depend on somebody else uh, trying to um, to judge your music for you. That's why it's hard to work with like A and R directors and people like that 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 don't know how to make a record. You know, and they're gonna sit and tell you that you know I don't like it or I can't feel it, you know. So you have to make a way for yourself, and that's what me and Huff did. We started our own record labels, started our own production companies, and um, and then we kept rolling. Okay, to round out the segment of this podcast dedicated to the songwriting teams that we've interviewed for the NAM Oral History Program is uh, the challenges that uh, Marilyn and Alan Bergman faced. And to talk a little bit about this um, requires a background on ASCAP. Uh, Marilyn served as the first female president of ASCAP for 12 years, as a matter of fact, and uh, from 1994, I believe, to 2009. And so some of the challenges that they're going to be talking about in this segment have to do with the business part of being a songwriter. And uh, back in 1914, some of the songwriters of Tin Pan Alley era uh, got together and uh, came up with some rules that they thought were significant in order to 
be recognized and of course to collect on being paid uh, with uh, performers singing their songs in clubs no one was there to really say okay well you owe the songwriter for this and um, imagine that times recordings times radio all of this stuff is developing at this time and the songwriter was feeling like they were being left behind and just giving their art away so um what I really uh, appreciate about the history of this is Victor Herbert and eight other songwriters and artists got together in the hotel lobby in 1914 and said, you know, let's create an organization that is dedicated to preserving our, our, our art and our rights. And what was really amazing is soon after, huge names in songwriting of Tin Pan Alley era got together like Joe, uh, George M. Cohan, who wrote Over There for World War I, uh, Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, and this guy called uh, John Philip Sousa, the March King, known uh, lovingly in the music products industry. And um, I mean, heavy hitters all getting together, putting their name behind it and saying, what can we do? And as a result, this organization is uh, now collecting, I think uh, last count was 2012, um, $941 million that they give out to their, what, uh, 670,000 songwriters. So they represent a huge group of people, but they also collect a lot of money for them that otherwise probably would not have been collected. Now, uh, to be fair, they did get a little competition in uh, 1939 when the, um, I think it's called the Broadcast Music Group, BMI, decided to start focusing on other songwriters that weren't well represented by ASCAP at that time. And that was mostly um, country singers and R&B artists and, of course, songwriters. So uh, they created their own niche. And so we have those two groups today, today as well as a couple of other uh, uh, organizations that help collect the royalties and pay the songwriters and the artists. Um, interestingly enough, and I think it's uh, worthy of a shout out to our good friend, uh, the songwriter Paul Williams. He's currently serving as president, as Marilyn Bergman did, as, uh, of ASCAP. Uh, we also interviewed him, and you can check out his web clip uh, in the NAM Oral History Program. And just my shout out is really because uh, Paul has been an absolute wonderful force for this organization, for NAM, to incorporate songwriters into our collection. He's never hesitated to help us connect to the people that we want to be connected to. So thank you, thank you, Paul. So that's a little bit of the background of ASCAP, and I think what Marilyn added to it was really modernizing it. You know, not only just being a female and, and having people pay attention to that element and that change in the world in 1994, but to address things that hadn't been really addressed before. And uh, since uh, digital downloads and all of that happened on her watch, she was instrumental excuse the pun, in trying <laughs> to figure out ways of keeping the songwriter uh, getting his royalties. Awesome. So let's hear from Marilyn and Alan talking about the importance of ASCAP. It's never more essential, this brilliant idea that those writers, some of the very same writers that Alan mentioned, the great writers early, the Berlins mm -hmm. and 
reporters, those people, this idea of the importance of the protection of writers and their songs, uh, and the performance right of their songs, the stories that I don't know that are as known now, that were told all the time of the great writers who, it's an apocryphal story maybe, but walked into his music being played on the pianist in the restaurant. And uh, he, he wasn't getting, making any money from whatever the song was. Uh, so uh, it was an honor beyond expression to me to be uh, on the board of ASCAP. First woman on the board of ASCAP. And then to be elected, uh, you know, to lead it. Very important now, boy. Where you know, the whole question of digital use of music and the problems that are just coming to a head right now uh, in the courts. Because this can't go on. I won't uh, respond to invitations now to talk to aspiring songwriters. I can't do it. I cannot tell them in all honesty that unless they perform and can go out on tour or get gigs in clubs that I can't assure them that they're going to be able to make a living just writing songs. How? You know? Uh, we who, well, Alan sings, but that's different. I mean, he works in clubs. He just did an evening at our performing arts center in West Hampton. It was, it was wonderful. But uh, it would not be a living if you didn't no. write the songs that you're singing, you know what I mean? No, no. Um, but uh, ASCAP will... It'll become very clear soon to this, the last couple of generations of new songwriters, it'll be very clear why ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, and the Performing Rights Society, are important now more than ever. Mm. Because um, it's as if, uh, you know, music's in the air, should be free, it's there. You know, it's you mm -hmm. turn on a computer and you go to find, you download it, and that's it. And it's like going into a store and stealing something. Mm. It's and it is, it is very difficult for me to encourage young songwriters today who don't have, you know, a performance side to them. Mm. And none of those people whom you mentioned, Mercer, yes, was a performer, but none of the others. No. So what, what would have happened mm -hmm. to a mm -hmm. Cole Porter, to a Bunny Gershwin was a pianist, but he only played because he wrote the Rhapsody in Blue and the mm -hmm. Spray. It's so, uh, a good point. Yeah. We would be bereft now of 
a whole legacy of music. The next song that you're going to hear is from Gamble and Huff. And I liked that we added this song here because we just got done talking about challenges. And the song that you're about to hear talks about picking yourself up and moving on and rising above those challenges, which will lead us into our next segment, the highlights of some of their careers. So this song is called Only the Strong Survive. I see you sitting there all alone, crying your eyes out. While everything's going wrong, you know there's going to be a whole lot of trouble in your life. Listen to me. Get up off your knees, because only the strong survive. Only the strong survive. I said don't go around with your head looking down. Don't you let them make you feel like a clown. There's a lot of opportunity out there just waiting for you, but you'll never succeed if you've given up and say your life is through. Listen this minute what I'm telling you. Only the strong survive. Very nice. All right. So let's hear from Gamble and Huff talking about some career highlights. I wonder if there's a highlight story that you guys could talk about. Maybe pick one song or, you know, something that has a particular good memory to yours as far as working together. Well, Anything come to mind? Well, the highlight of the whole thing is the fact that me, Huff, Tom Bell, Roland Chambers, this whole group of people got together and made made something where we could make a living and that we were able to to wake up every morning and write music because we all had jobs we all had you know we was trying to make it in life right. and but our love was music so that to me was is the number one thing and then as we go along we meet up with CBS Clive Davis and and after being with Chess Records, after having uh, uh, Gamble Records with Benny Crass and Cal Rubman, I mean, we've been through so many stages. Mm-hmm. And then when we got with CBS, it was like it was like me and Huff meeting. It was compatible because they were a great marketing merchandising company, and we were a creative company. And what it was able to do is to take our music and spread it all over the world and that relationship lasted as long as it could I guess you know what I mean but but it was a great opportunity for us mm-hmm. to um, to broaden our whole horizons I mean we we started to, you notice a lot of our songs that people all over the world would like love train, right? <laughs> so so we, we were thinking worldwide, you know, and, and that's what happened. The whole world is, uh, is familiar with the Philly sound, you know? And uh, I, think, I think we were an asset to CBS and they definitely was an asset to us. Yeah, fantastic. How did you get Lou Rawls to record your songs? Did he come to you or did you go to him? Well, there was a guy with us, his name was Jimmy Bishop, who uh, was a disc jockey here in Philadelphia, and then he, uh, he came to work with us. And uh, Jimmy Bishop, he went to get Lou Rawls. He said, man, I think you guys could do a great job with him. And so Bishop went and got Lou Rawls and signed him up. And um, Lou, Lou was a challenge for me and Huff. Yeah. You know, because this, this was, uh, this was a, a, an icon. This wasn't, and so, but we got him first record. You'll never find yeah. another love like mine. So, 
So Lou, we, we enjoyed working with Lou. Took us to another level of professionalism, mm. you know, for gambling off. Well, we went from Russell Pickett to Lou Ross. To Joe Simon, <laughs> to Freddie Scott, <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass, Billy Paul. Voices. These are great voices. Jerry Butler. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry Butler, Butler, wow, man. Can't even out. No way. You can't, and Jerry Butler, just to mention, Huff and I, we wrote songs with Jerry Butler. See, that was a big difference, too. Most of these other people, we never wrote with them. Yeah. But Jerry Butler, I learned so much from writing with him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How he just flowed. You know what I mean? It had so much fun. Yeah. You know, so. We had a we had a good run with Jerry. Moody Woman was great. Uh, yeah. Western Union Man. Only the Strong Survive and then Never Gonna Give You Up is is a classic, you know, so But Elvis covered Only the Strong Survive. Yeah. That's how powerful that song was. What did you think when you heard that version by Elvis? Oh. I liked it. Yeah? Yeah, I loved I it. I liked Elvis anyway. Mm. He had a different feel for that song. I know. So like there was an article in the newspaper where it said his daughter said that he used to walk around the house and sing "Only the Strong Survive." Huh. Yeah, Lisa, Lisa Presley really? said that. Yeah, no, but it was in an article because see, that's that's what he was. He was strong, Elvis. I mean, look, he's still his spirit is still around. You can't you can't you can't uh, deny. It. His presence, you see. So Elvis Presley is uh, Graceland, and that's right. I mean, it's unbelievable. I saw um, I saw something on TV about John Lennon up in uh, Central Park. They they have a uh, strawberry fields. They they got a place memorial there. Millions of people come there, mm. you know, every year. Shoot, that's on cloud nine when Elvis. Did you call me up, told me Elvis. Yeah, Elvis. Elvis. Elvis Presley. I said, yeah, we arrived, the songwriters. Well, <laughs> Elvis? Elvis, Michael Blue Blay, he did Me and Mrs. Jones, which is, you know, from a different... Uh, uh, perspective. Perspective, yeah. did an excellent job. So that was a little segment from uh, Gamble and Huff, and of course now we're all singing and humming Only the Strong Survive. Um, of course, steam is still coming out of my ears, Mike, because uh, there's so much to say about... You know, Gamble and Huff did such an amazing job by creating songs for specific artists, and Jerry Butler was certainly one of them. I mean, Jerry Butler's voice is perfect for their songs and vice versa. And uh, he, of course, recorded a fantastic version, the original version of Only the Strong Survive. He also uh, recorded uh, Hey Western Union Man, which um, <laughs> I remember as a kid, and uh, Never Gonna Give You Up. And, um, you know, just, yeah, you're going to start singing that one too, Michelle. <laughs> and just the pairing of them, you know, the three of them, that voice, those lyrics, and that music is just unstoppable as far as I'm concerned. So I had to say something about Jerry Butler. That's fine. You guys are in for a concert this afternoon. <laughs> so. All right. So to round out our career highlights section, we're going to hear from Jay Livingston and Ray Evans once again. When you guys think about your career, do you... Do um, any particular moments uh, or a particular song come to mind? 
Oh God! So this, so this is Ray Evans talking. There's so many of them that uh, what I mean the first thing what he said what I said to Jay. Let's stay in New York and write songs. Never know who's going to lead us. And then the, when we came to California, when to each his own. I pick up Billboard one day and there's a review by a new band. Eddie Howard said this song has got to be a number one song. So you know, going along that way, it's just, it's, it's, I could cite millions. But those are three very significant uh, moments that I can remember. When we got called by the head of the news department at Paramount. And he said, I have some news for you. The war had just ended. And they said, there's so many orders on to each his own, they can't find a shellac to make the records. <laughs> and that was a turning point in our career. That's for sure. I don't know how many millions and millions of records it sold, but... Uh, Ray used to be quite a pessimist. He got over right. after success. But he looked kind of down, and I said, what's the matter with you? He said, now they're going to expect this from us all the time. I'm kind of scared of my thing. That's for sure, my guy. It's the thing you dreamt about here, it is in your hands. Now, how are you going to follow up on yeah. it? Luckily, we did. We were in Buddy De Silva's office at one point. Yeah, just before, before we, I got a job at Paramount. Yeah, before we got to Paramount. And uh, they wanted a Betty Hutton song written on speculation. And because it means you don't get paid. And uh, Mercer, Johnny Mercer recommended this to Buddy De Silva. And we wrote three different songs to be sure we got in there. And the head of the music department, Louis Lipstone, had to hear them first. And he said, I want to like this one, so play this one song and nothing else. And well, we couldn't afford to offend him because he ran the studio. Went over to uh, Buddy De Silva's office, and I played the first song and sang it. And he laughed so hard I had to add extra bars so he could hear the rest of the lyrics. Then he said, I don't like it. <laughs> he was famous That's as true. being a good audience. Now we're out in the outer office, very discouraged. We lost our big chance. And Lipstone was talking to De Silva about something, and we could hear. We heard him say, they had another song I didn't like so much, Buddy, but maybe you better listen to it. And Buddy looked at his watch, and that's where our whole life changed. So once again, that was Livingston and Evans talking about their career highlights. The next segment is probably my favorite segment of the podcast. And if you were still with us, I would imagine it's going to be yours, too. (laughs) The next segment is all about some background stories to their songs and how they got to where... I'm trying to think of the best way to word it. How they were motivated to write certain songs and just how they came up with some of these ideas. The last team in our podcast we haven't heard lyrics from yet is Bergman and Bergman. So we're going to go ahead and read you one of their songs called Memories. You might recognize it, sang by Barbara Streisand. Memories light the corners of my mind, misty watercolored memories of the way we were, scattered pictures of the smiles we left behind, smiles we gave to one another for the way we were. Can it be that it was all so simple then, or has time rewritten every line? If we had the chance to do it all again, tell me, would we? Could we? Memories may be beautiful, and yet, what's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. So it's the laughter we will remember, whenever we will remember the way we were. So we're going to hear from Bergman and Bergman talking about a few things. Their first song they published, Yellow Bird and Frank Sinatra, as well as some Barbara Streisand songs. I wonder if you could both tell us about your uh, your first song that was published. Do you recall that and how that happened? Mm-hmm. Well, the first song that we wrote together, you mean? Yeah. yeah. What was the first song? Well, we were writing children's songs that. Uh, no. That got. We had 
pop song published. Oh. Before that, didn't we? Uh, well, the they, they, they were not memorable. That's <laughs> But the first song that made an impression, you know, let's put it that way, uh, we were writing, as I said, children's songs with Norman Luboff. Norman Luboff had a choir, a very successful choir, and that recorded for Columbia, uh, Columbia Records. Records. Uh, and one day he called, it was 1958, and he, it was a Calypso craze in this country. And Harry Belafonte had recorded the day of uh, set know, off. And set off, a, a, and Norman called and said, we're gonna write uh, 11 or 12 Calypso songs. Um, Columbia Records wants me to put out right away an album called Calypso Holiday. Uh, this was Monday, and right away meant Friday. He was going to go. And Friday he was going to go in and record. Wow. So we wrote 11 or 12 uh, Calypso songs, one of which was a song called Yellow Bird. And uh, we had no idea that it became the number one song in the country, you know. Several times. Yeah, it was recorded by several people. And that, you know, that paid the bills for a little bit. Uh, in fact, there was a, an air, airline company called North East. North East Airlines. And they paint, painted all their planes yellow and said, fly the yellow birds down to uh, the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, we lived off that commercial for, <laughs> for a little bit. And then that was that we were writing with the aforementioned Lou Spence and in 1960. Lou knew uh, the manager of Frank Sinatra's uh, publishing companies, and uh, they, uh, he said he was, they were looking for a... Irving Weiss. Uh, no, Nick Sanicola. Hank Sanicola was his manager. Yeah, but he but was the Irving publisher, Weiss right? Irving Weiss was the publisher. Yeah. With Irving and his brother and, Sam Weiss and Shaw, and Eddie Shaw. Eddie Shaw. They were all. They were all. You know, in the Sinatra group. And yeah. Sinatra was going to make a, a an album in those days of um, lightly swinging love songs, and they were looking for a title song. And they must have put out the call. Everybody in the songwriter from here to the Brill Building, where you know. Uh, and we wrote a song called Nice and Easy, and he picked that as the title song. And that, you know, that became uh, kind of a standard. So that was good. <laughs> that was good. So was there any particular song that you were um, most proud of, I guess, that she, that she performed? It's hard to choose. Very I was choosing between gems, yeah, yeah. emeralds or diamonds yeah. or rubies. And, you know. <laughs> but you know, we're very proud of the fact that, for instance, uh, and of course the way she sang it, uh, how the way we were worked in the movie, you know, because we had no idea it was going to be as popular as it became. But I mean, it had a function in the movie. Hmm in two places. And, thanks and to Sidney Pollock. Thanks, yes. And uh, that's always uh, what we're after, 
I mean, that was the job to be the, to do. I don't know. I guess she made a CD uh, a few years ago. Maybe two CDs ago of all our songs. Um, it's dedicated to us, yeah. Called What Matters Most. And it's... <laughs> Can you imagine how thrilling yeah. that is yeah. for songwriters? So next up, we're going to hear from Livingston and Evans for the final time, talking about um, some background stories behind their songs. Uh, Mona Lisa, Buttons and Bows, and Silver Bells. I look at your long list of very successful tunes, and, yes. and some of them you automatically look at the title, for example, Mona Lisa, and say, wow, that, you know, the music yeah. is just wonderful. Of course. And well, then see, you... that was a picture where Alan Ladd was for the apartments in Italy during World War II, and he was running a clandestine radio, and he had to know when the Nazi patrol was coming. So the writers, as usual, say, well, so let somebody write a song. And uh, a fellow on the street played the accordion, and when he played a certain melody, that warned Alan Ladd that the Nazis were coming, he hid the radio and disappeared. I wrote the melody uh, Italian. We had a title, Prima Donna, which was a terrible title. That's right, too awful. Well, I mean, there was a song called Ballerina, so you know, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> but we did. And on the way in the studio, I wrote, we didn't have to write Mona Lisa. Uh, we were writing the first Martin and Lewis picture, My Friend Irma. And uh, they said, if you don't write, can't have time to write a song, we'll use a public domain song for you, like Santa Lucia, one of the Italian songs. But on the way in the studio, it took me half an hour from the valley to get there. I wrote, Prima Donna, Prima Donna, they then wrote the whole melody. And uh, I got in the studio and I said, don't say a word because you can forget it quick. I got sure. a good melody. And I wrote it down. The next day, Ray's wife came up with the title of Mona Lisa. We wrote that the next day, and that was the end of it. it was a fat, we wrote a song very fast on occasions, and that was one of them. That was inspiration completely. Yeah. Wow. Well, now you take things like Button and Bows. I mean, the lyric on that is just great. I mean, great, great... Uh, well, that was another scene like uh, Alan Ladd's picture. Bob Hope was driving a covered wagon, and the riders wanted to take the wrong wagon trail and lead all the other wagons into an Indian ambush. And so they said, why didn't somebody sing a little song, as usual? And Jane Russell was uh, in the back of the wagon. Yeah, he was singing to her. Yeah, he sat, turned around and sang to her, playing a little concertina, not paying attention. His horses took the wrong trail, and all the horses behind him went into an Indian ambush. <laughs> so we wrote a song called Skookum, which we thought was real cute. Skookum is a real Indian word, meaning everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be skookum. And we thought it was real good. We went to the director, and I sang Skookum. Uh... Betcha me, getcha you, like the Indian said, I'd be your big chief mate. Then wife gonna be skookum, skookum mean you great, and so forth. The director said, no way am I gonna use that song. <laughs> we were kind of shocked. We said, why not? said, this is a dangerous scene. There's an Indian ambush coming up. I can't have a comedy song about Indians. And we said, nobody's gonna hurt Bob Hope. Well, we wouldn't dare. He's too big a star, but he was adamant about it. <laughs> so we were very unhappy. We went back to the studio our office and we had to write a new song and on the way back Ray came up with the title of Buttons and Bows because they, uh, the producer wanted a song how uh, Bob wanted to go back east where the girls were wore pretty clothes and everything was safe and nobody was shooting anybody. 
They're shooting everybody now, but they weren't then in the city. Yeah, right, sure. <laughs> and not with bows and arrows now, either. Well, and that's how buttons and bows came along. Yeah. <laughs> and, and luckily, it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, where does inspiration come from? Who knows? But that was an inspired thing, and it won us our first Oscar. And then after to each his own and Golden Aries and then buttons and bows winning an Oscar, why, we were in pretty good shape in, in the career uh, department. So uh, uh, I'm not sure about the word inspiration. I think it's just hard work. Well, I know. Somehow you had to, we had to get the idea of buttons and bows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and know, we had to write it to the right way, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know. The uh, a story we wrote about Alexander Dumas, when his son said, I don't have talent. And Dumas said, I don't have talent. This desk has talent. <laughs> you know, you sit down, you, you do that's it. That's right, you do <laughs> it, sure. But somehow you got to get somewhere. you got to get the hook. And the, wherever the hook buttons and bows came from, we'll never know. But thank God it came. <laughs> no, I mean, that was a, just an amazing song. And, and I, as you said, that was your first Academy Award. Right. Did you know after completion, before all the hip parade things started happening, that you had something real special there? No, we liked the songs. Yeah. We like Mona Lisa. We didn't think Mona Lisa was a hit. At least I didn't. There was just yeah. a charming art piece. Yeah. And Buttons and Bows was rather unusual. Yeah. The only song I thought would be a hit was K Sarasara because it was so simple. <laughs> and you could grab onto it real quick. That's the only one I was fairly sure. The rest well, were all surprises. You were sure right on that. That's yeah. for sure. Because that turned out to be, K Sarasara turned out to be one of our biggest, biggest hits, not only here, but worldwide. You can go in any country in the world and then they'll K Sarasara. I've been to all kinds of third world countries, places like Burma, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Cuba, etc. They all knew K Sarasara, and, you know, I was given much credit for being part of the writing team of it, so uh, uh, it's, it's amazing how a song can uh, can jump over boundaries and walls and everything else. Well, the funny thing is, que sera, sera means the same thing in Italian, yeah. French, and Spanish. That's the right. The same sir. thing, que sera, sera, so they all knew that expression right away. And also, every culture has that philosophy, you know, what's going to be is going to be, it's in the hands of fate, kismet, Allah, whatever it is. The funny thing is, we put two phrases into the English language. Everybody said to each his own before we wrote that song. Right. Sure. It came from an obscure poem. Yeah, but we can't claim credit for Mona Lisa. That no, would be okay, sera, sera, because it's a common expression everybody uses since That's the right, song sure. came out. Okay, sera, sure. Yeah. They use it in stories and books, you know, in uh, common conversation. So that's the impact of a hit song. You see, To Each His Own was a picture, and Victor Young was a great musician. He scored it and wrote good songs, but he refused to write it. They, they assigned him to write it. That's the dumbest title. I don't know what nobody knows what that means. That's a dumb title. That's those new kids write it, and that's how we got the assignment. <laughs> so that yeah. that's a that's a, a big break right there. Of course, right. sure. No things you can't predict. You have no yeah. control over. They happen, and you know, as Jay said, if you work hard at it enough, and you do, you have the talent maybe to do it, then uh, it'll come out right. But uh, that's uh, you know, you only know that after the fact. Now, um, kind of moving forward here, um, it must. It, it must be really neat. It's certainly an honor for me to talk to uh, two writers of a, a Christmas classic as yeah, well. Yeah. How did that one come about? Well, that was, that's our annuity. Oh, it sure is. Tell the story of Silver Belt, which is really... Well, well we had a... I don't know. Is, is this going to be on the air? I'll say it where you can cut it if you have to. Okay. This is a story I told me do our act. Uh, we had to write a Christmas song. We didn't want to because our opposite was coming up. and We hadn't had a hit for a while. So we, it was for Bob Hope. A picture called uh, The Lemon Drop Kid. So uh, we went up front and said, Can we write something else there? But they were out of it. They wanted a Christmas song, which made us very unhappy. We wrote a song called Tinkle Bell, <laughs> about the tinkly bells you hear at Christmas uh, with the Santa Claus of the Salvation Army. He said, That'll work. Being the picture, will never hear it again. 
When I went home that night, my wife said, what did you do today? I said, we wrote a song called Tinkle Bell. So you know, wrote a song called Tinkle Bell? So you know what Tinkle means to most people? <laughs> I won't tell the rest of it. <laughs> I didn't get that connotation, the, the bathroom connotation, but yeah. it certainly was there. We'd never thought about that. It's a woman's song expression. I've heard a man say I have to tinkle. No, <laughs> but women do, right. So we came back and we, we changed the tinkle to silver and didn't change a word of the song. And with Silver Bells, which is a lucky thing we did, because Tinkle Bells pretty dumb title. <laughs> right. And Silver Bells is getting bigger every year. It's just incredible how every year it gets more recorded and bigger and stuff. So, that's, as Jay just told you, it's a real annuity. So uh, It sold $140 million since it came out. $140 million least, records. Yeah, at least. And, and well, this year, it's probably up to $150, it's, uh, $150 million or so. Cause it sells $3, 4000000 million every Christmas. It gets new records every year. So uh, uh, that's uh, you know, a very, very fortunate thing for us. So has anybody recorded it as Tinkle Bells? No, thank no. God. No, 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 nobody ever heard that. That never came out. We just, I just erased it on the copy and it's over. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't change anything else. Of course, it had an advantage. Uh, it was the first time in a Christmas song that we know of had been written about the city, all the rest about the country and the sleigh rides and, you know, snow stuff. And this was about city streets, so that gave it a little added advantage to the people who really listened to the lyrics. So, uh, you know, I say that gave it a little niche of its own and, and, uh, and it it, it took off from there. We tried to make it different. We put it in 3-4, because other Christmas songs were not in 3-4. Mm -hmm. I also wrote the music, so the uh, verse and the chords could be sung at the same time. Hmm. In other words, city sidewalks, busy, so at the same time you can sing silver bells against that. And Bing Crosby's first record did it that way. And it was very impressive, and I think that helped a lot. Okay, the uh, final segment of the final segment <laughs> is... Um, uh, Lieber and Stoller talking about uh, some of their um, songs, uh, in particular Hound Dog and the background story behind it. And I just want to add that I think what's really neat about being a musician and a fan of music is that we get to climb in the brains of some very clever people and hear how they express themselves and as musicians you're standing on stage and you get to listen to somebody like mike playing the drums or other friends playing other instruments and you think wow okay that's how they do that that's there's there's their expression right there and what's neat about songwriting to me is they're expressing it for us you know they are the ones saying the story and oftentimes and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have ever felt this way but sometimes I listen to something and I say gosh I wish I had said that you know that's probably better than I would have said that particular sentiment or um, I wish I expressed myself the same way you know and I think that's uh, Jerome Kern once said that Irving Berlin was blessed with every man's ear and heart and I do believe that's the magic of songwriting in my estimation. And all of these teams have done that uh, in funny ways, in very serious ways, in sentimental ways, in popular swinging, dancing ways, uh, but they've all done it. And I think our lives are enriched by that process and that connection that we have. I don't think I ever felt that as strong as when I was hanging out with uh, 
Mike Stoller and, and Jerry Lieber. I mean, being a fan of Elvis had a lot to do with it, but I just think picking up on the friendship that they had for each other, the love they had for each other, the care that they had for each other, and the pride that they had in what they were able to accomplish together as friends. So I think it's a, a particularly meaningful to me that our uh, podcast ends on a segment uh, with Lieber and Stoller talking about probably their most famous song, Hound Dog. What's also interesting about that is the progression of what's sort of allowed as an expression and what isn't, you know, and, and when Big Mama was singing, uh, some of those lyrics weren't not necessarily going to be the same that Elvis would sing. Well, there was nothing wrong with them. It's just that they were a woman's song. And um, actually they were, the, the whole the title and everything was very tame compared to what Jerry wanted to uh, use <laughs> in You Ain't Nothing But A. Uh, <laughs> but I thought Hound Dog said it all and, and it would work and it would get played. <laughs> <laughs> that was your original idea, huh, Jerry? Yes, but I didn't get my way about it entirely. <laughs> And so we've suffered with that for years. And became a major hit, and not to be, well, I didn't get all the credit for it because my erstwhile partner over here insisted that it be sung in a way that was acceptable to the general public. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One of the things that you often hear from uh, Elvis fans is that uh, he, had, he was greatly influenced by the blues and got Hound Dog from Big Mama, although... It, he he well, well he, knew, he knew Hound Dog by Big Mama, but it was a woman's song. He later heard a, a white group in a lounge in Las Vegas who had corrupted our beautiful song and uh, so that a, a male singer could sing it with the lines about the the rabbit and it was actually when you listen it was like somebody singing to a dog whereas the woman was singing to a man and uh, but he liked it and he did it and it was okay after a while. It got to sound better and better. <laughs> On the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were actually, is, is this where we introduced the story that you were on some famous ship that uh, yeah, had a little bit of an it. era? <laughs> yeah, I, I was coming back from my first trip to Europe. We'd had uh, a hit and I got a check for $5,000. And I thought I'd never see that much money again in my life at one time anyway. And I went to Europe for three months and came back uh, in style on a ship called the Andrea Doria. And uh, in 1956, I was coming back to New York actually from uh, Naples, and uh, it collided in uh, fog with a ship called the Stockholm, 
and uh, eventually it sank. I managed to get off in a broken lifeboat and was eventually picked up by a freighter. And the freighter brought us into New York. And Jerry was waiting at the dock. He'd apparently been watching it on television or radio. Um, you know, this tragedy at sea. And he ran up and he said, Mike, you're okay, you're all right. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he said, Mike, we got a smash hit. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, hound dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> And then I heard the record two days later. What did you think? Too fast. Wrong feel. Wrong lyrics that he changed the song to. You ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. It's not anything close to what I wrote. Were you upset about that? Yeah. Uh, mainly because, not just because it was a... a, a a faux pun. It was a lyrical, uh, but uh, it changed the whole story of the song. The song was about a woman kicking a gigolo out of her house. And it starts with, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, quit snooping at my door. You can wag your tail, but I ain't gonna feed you no more. Now that is the lyric, and it's gotta do about, I'm not gonna let you you know, soft soap me or hang out on me or any of that stuff, I'm kicking you out. The other thing about a rabbit was go figure what that is. You ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. I mean, that really is country. <laughs> so, uh, but it came out and it was a smash. It was a smash. And we were happy that it was a smash and we had a hard time looking a gift horse in the mouth. And, or the teeth, or anywhere else. And uh, we started writing for him. It gave us the opportunity to, to write more stuff for him. Specifically for him? Yeah. 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 Was Loving You specifically for him? It no. was for Loving You, yeah. It was specifically for the no. movie that was titled Loving You. But not before him. She, she said, was it written before him? No, oh, for written him. for Sorry. him. For him. Did Sorry. you say for yeah, him? For yeah, him. it was Sorry. written for him and for the movie. Yeah. Neither of those movies were titled Loving You or Jailhouse Rock until after we had written songs. And then they changed the title of the film to the title of the song. So that concludes our podcast all about the four famous songwriting teams. And once again, that was Livingston and Evans, Gamble and Huff, Lieber and Stoller, and last, definitely not least, Bergman and Bergman. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate that. Shout out to Mike for post-production. And Michelle, thank you very much for putting all this together for us. All right, everyone. We will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. 
If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.